0: Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Cassingham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, I talk with Brian Linton, founder and CEO of United by Blue. If you haven't heard of United by Blue, it was born out of a need to create a more sustainable clothing solution, one that isn't damaging to the planet and also made to last. But this was about 10 years ago, And what began as a clothing brand has turned into the go-to spot for purchasing anything sustainable. They are truly a marketplace that you can trust. So let's dive into the conversation with Brian. Thanks for being a part of this podcast. I'm really excited for it. Um, I've been a fan of United by Blue for years now. Um, It's kind of one of those things where people I think are now starting to hear a little bit more about your brand and kind of what you guys stand for because i think in in the retail space there's so much i guess separation between you know what's sustainable what's not what's greenwashed what's not and i think you guys bring just like such a fresh perspective to it so i'd love to just start with a little bit of your story and just where you kind of came up what why why clothing originally why retail and why united by blue i know you had a little bit of um, you had kind of a startup company that became United by Blue, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and your background, where you're originally from, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, so I, my my background starts with as many entrepreneurs, my, my childhood. And I grew up in predominantly in, in Southeast Asian Singapore. And so because I grew up in Singapore, Singapore is, although it's it's known for high tech and crazy rich Asians and things like that. It, it, it's actually also got a, a tropical fish scene. That's, that's quite, uh, robust and, and also sophisticated in terms of, uh, like there's a lot of hobbyists that are, that are raising various forms of, you know, tropical fish, some of them very high end. I remember in my upbringing, you know, you go to a fish store in Singapore, it's not like going to a. It's not like going to Petco here or you know PetSmart and seeing like a dollar guppy. It's you go and you, and you see like an eighty-eight thousand dollar like fish. Oh yeah, it's crazy. And this is back you know twenty years ago. I remember oh seeing some God. fish for that.
0: Wait, how did how did that all happen? Like, why why is that such an important part of the culture? Is it just that
1: the tropical fish are there and there's a market for it? Or it's it's interesting. There there is there is an actual there's an actual like large. Fish farm scene, totally behind the scenes in Singapore. So you go to Singapore, you see, you know, Marina Bay Sands, the big hotels, the casino, like the Louis Vuitton, all the high end. You know, I mean, Singapore is the most, the most wealthy country in the world. Highest per capita of millionaires living in Singapore than anywhere else, and 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 even more so now that people are leaving places like Hong Kong and other areas of the world and going into Singapore. Anyways, but. Then there's this like go you go you go into the the back roads of Singapore, which there are few back roads because it's a small the island is like 30 miles or so long. That's the country. Um, But then there's this this area that is known for fish breeding, and uh, I used to find it so fascinating as a child. I would go to uh, it was literally called Fish Farm Road, and uh, Fish Farm Road would be you know where you could go and you could see. all the fish farms that were breeding fish that were going to be traded across the world. Usually, the higher end fish. Um, you know, not all, not all eighty thousand dollar fish, but like, you know, a lot of things that were basically going to, uh, you know, be in. Um, yeah, be in be in fish stores, fish stores like around the world. Uh, largely, like the the more expensive fish that I had and that um, that were really a big part of culture there was something called an arowana, Asian arowana. Arowana is, is, it's like a long skinny fish with two little barbs and, um, and they can, they, they they can be really expensive. And um, you even have microchips in them to trace their origin back to their fish farm and everything like that. Anyways, long story short is that the, the reason why I think fish, not, not just the economic driver of having the industry of fish farming, but also the culture around fish and luck and um, prosperity and things like that is a big big cultural uh, cornerstone of say Chinese culture, um, which uh, about 70 plus percent of Singaporeans are of Chinese heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, if you go to like a doctor's office or you go to like a lawyer's office or you go to any, any, any like any, you know, Home. There might be a fish that is uh, either either something that is a certain color. Maybe it has certain markings. There's there's a lot of like superstition around, like even like the luck of like this this one fish that was really popular when I was a teenager called the um, flowerhorn, or in 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 Singapore we call it the rohan. And so the rohan would have like this big fat forehead, and then it would have all these markings along the side of the body. And I remember, I remember the fish shop owners that I would go and, and visit almost daily would always try to see numbers in the side and, and then bet those numbers in the lottery. Oh my <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Things like that, I think just yeah. were, were very like, there's more to it than just like, oh, that's a beautiful fish. There was, there was a lot mm. of, again, like I said, there was a lot of like this, this, this idea of prosperity and luck and, 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 and wealth that was behind what a fish could symbolize and so I think but and that's not necessarily where, where my interests lay uh where I was really interested in fish was I, I thought fish are amazing I was always into fish even prior to getting into raising fish but I was also really into um you know the the business side of like hey I I can I can breed a fish, and then I can create all these babies, and then I can bring them back to the fish store, and I can barter with them, and so I was really into, like, the whole, I had 30 fish tanks in my bedroom growing up, so I was oh like, yeah, no way, <laughs> yeah, so I was really into fish, I have zero fish tanks now, I actually have a one fish tank in my upstairs that is empty, it's not a, it's it's an empty fish tank uh, that just glares at me and reminds me of my past fish days, um, but anyways, long story short is that when you're, when you're, when you're dealing with fish like this, and it's not just a, know a fish tank with a few dollars worth of guppies in it i took water quality very seriously and i took like what does the the water need of this fish you know and all fish have slightly different needs and you know the 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 different temperatures different acidities the different um you know balance of 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 vegetation and so although that this wasn't necessarily something that i realized at the time looking back the 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 raising of these tropical fish, and I had, you know, I didn't have any super, super expensive fish. The most expensive fish that I had was when I left uh, Singapore, I sold it for like a thousand dollars, which mm-hmm. was like phenomenal. Like that was like a huge thing for me. Um, and it, I mean, who whoever really has a thousand dollars living fish, <laughs> right? I mean, like that's that's sort of crazy. Um, but like, so when you have a thousand dollars fish in your high school bedroom, and um, you want to keep it alive. And so the water quality was, was the core element of that. And so when you when I came to the States and I started looking around, um, you know, at say the water bodies or the, the rivers that were running through Philadelphia or New York City, um, you know, you start to realize that uh, in nature, we treat the water so poorly and there's so much trash in that water. I would never have trash in my fish tanks, right? I would never want to have my fish interact with that or have any health concerns because of that. So it's just a microcosm of this larger ecosystem issue that we have with 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 the world where it's like, okay, you know, same thing as, as like any, any natural environment that we try to recreate in isolation or, or away from nature, you know, would we put toxins, would we put plastics, would we, no, we wouldn't do any of that in, in trying to create a natural habitat. But then, in the actual natural world, we pollute the crap out of it. So, um, so that was sort of the juxtaposition of, of 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 what I saw in the natural world versus what I knew to be right and wrong, which is doesn't take a you know a rocket scientist to to figure that out. But um, it was shocking to me when I came to the states because America, I always perceived as you know super first world, and at least my my experience with it you know, as an American growing up overseas, I always, you know, envisioned the beauty of the beauty of the country and like the the Rocky Mountains, you know, out in Boulder and like, and then when I came to live in an actual city in America, I realized just how pervasive the issues of plastic pollution are. They're not just in Indonesia, Vietnam, China, India. Um, They are in first world countries like the U.S. as well. And so I wanted to start a business that would uh, really tap into my passion for the outdoors and the natural world, but also uh, address some of the issues that I saw as some of the more pressing issues of our time, and and one of those being uh, plastic pollution and trash getting into our oceans.
0: Wow, that's that is such an interesting story of how you got into it. Um, something that honestly I don't think anybody would ever see coming <laughs> at all. Um, but also you're you're addressing a problem that you know, I think has gotten a lot more popularity over, over the years. Um, but it's been an issue for a long time. Um, I mean, growing, growing up next to the beach, I mean, I remember I was, I was probably like 19 or something and I was surfing and, um, there was literally just, we we're in the lineup and there's just trash everywhere. And you're like, this is a beautiful place and there's trash, you know, floating in the water next to you. Um, and you know, it's really, it's really just sad, um, at the end of the day. And, and, You know, the solutions around it, I think are getting better, but it's, it's more of an awareness thing that I think people haven't thought about, you know, what happens when you throw away your trash or don't throw it away.
1: Exactly. And, and you nailed it. Like it's been an issue for a while. And I think that in the last 10 years, even since starting United by blue in 2010, I remember starting in 2010 and the the level of awareness for plastics and plastic pollution in the ocean is very, very low. It seems so recently, but, but so much has happened in the last 10 years um, that is very encouraging. I mean, the, the notion that, you know, there's, there's places where, you know, straws are now banned or, or considered evil or, you know, plastic band ba- bags. Um, none of that was on the topic of conversation in 2010. And, um, you know, the, the notion that you would go out on a weekend with your friends to do a beach cleanup or, you know, pick up trash as well, all of these things have become more of a, like a normal thing in culture versus versus an oddity. And I think that 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 is very encouraging. But it does, to your point, it does have a long way to go. And and the, the culture of disposable and single use plastics is the core, the core element of that. It's not so much the people's behavior uh, after the fact, because the amount of trash that actually people Purposely try to put into the oceans and waterways is, is not the issue. It's it's really just the creation of it in the first place, and then yep. how pervasive it is, and therefore how it gets in. Eighty percent, just as an example, eighty percent of trash that gets into the ocean uh, starts on land. Uh, whether or not that's blown out of a trash bin and then goes into a gutter, even even if it starts in Boulder, Colorado, it could ultimately make it into the ocean because everything's united by by blue. Everything's united yeah. by by the waterways.
0: Yeah, so when you, when you decided you were going to start this brand, I mean, one, I can tell where the name came from for sure, um, but w- what was kind of your initial mindset when you were starting the company? I mean, in, a, in an area that I think now it's easier to start a company that has that thread through the company, but you were starting at a time where it wasn't really talked about. So what was that kind of struggle for you to overcome that, not only the education of the consumer, but also getting traction as a company? And where did you kind of start? What was your initial, you know, product focus? What was the inception, I guess?
1: The uh, <clears throat> the, the product inception was very basic and something that uh, I think a lot of people have started with, and uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. But t-shirts. So I started in 2010 with four t-shirts, and really at the at, at the beginning, it was it wasn't so much about the t-shirts; it was about even more so about the mission and, and the message than the product. I would say that now we've found a perfect balance between making amazing product that people probably like with or without the mission. Um, although it would never be separate from the mission. It's, it's, it's important to have great product. At the beginning, it was really about the strong message around conservation and what we were, what we were aspiring to do for the world. And the only reason why I think it worked is the the market that we that we sold to initially was the outdoor industry. And so outdoor shops that were already very in tune with the natural world and wanted to really tell a story around conservation through a product. Um, You know, I I don't think that say traditional fashion or traditional stores were ready in the same way for that type of message as um, as the outdoor industry was. And so the first hundred stores that I sold to were probably exclusively outdoor oriented stores, stores that were selling brands like Patagonia, for instance, or Prana. So really compatible with that message, but complementary in a sense that it was, it was telling a different story of conservation um, that people really resonated with. And so for the first five, six years, we really were an outdoor brand. We were, we were, we were very focused on sort of the, love of the outdoors and the protection of it. That sense, along with the culture of conservation sort of getting more intertwined into normal day life, we've evolved more into a sustainable living brand, which to me is more exciting because sustainability and the outdoors are synonymous with one another and we'll always be focused on the love of the outdoors. So the threat of being an outdoor brand is is still there, but the actual, best way to have maximum impact as well as maximum growth is to be inclusive and and really looking at the world holistically and not just as a singular sort of segment of the population, which is, you know, the outdoor quote unquote outdoor industry. Although maybe that's, you know, in certain markets like where you live, it, it might be 98% of the population. Mm-hmm. The reality is the rest of the world is not, is not like that, right? So mm-hmm. we're we're really trying to create a brand that's inclusive of all walks of life that want to be sustainable and want to live a sustainable life. So United by Blue now is a sustainable living brand that can sell United by Blue branded products. So, you know, a United by Blue t-shirt or United by Blue, you know, sweatshirt or pants or hat or whatever, but also best in class sustainability products from other brands. We sell over 50 brands uh, that are, that are brands that we believe in. And so United by Blue in that way has become sort of a a trusted source in sustainability. So, you know, if we sell something, we know that it's something that is better for the world. And and that's an important part of our of our sort of ultimate goal as well is to be the the go-to destination for sustainable living.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I love that you mentioned that because that's honestly one of the reasons why I've always come back to United by Blue is that, you know, when you're when you're researching brands, I mean, nowadays almost every brand is saying in some way, shape or form they have a product line that is quote unquote sustainable, but you're not necessarily looking at the whole loop of what they're creating. Um, and it's almost like you can just go to United by Blue and you're like, cool, I trust this place um, because everything here has been vetted. There's a deep thread of what you guys believe through every single product. Um, what was that decision that you guys made to kind of start offering other products? Like, was there a, was there a point where you're like, man, maybe we should pivot a little bit or is, has it always been part of the vision?
1: No, I think it I think that that vision started to develop a few years ago. Uh, we We had complementary products that we were selling probably as as long as five, six years ago. But I would say, uh, give or take, three years ago, we started to really have a concerted effort to build out the 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 portfolio of brands that we believed in, that we wanted to that we wanted to bring into our our physical stores that we operate in Philadelphia now, one in Chicago. And and that's going to be an important part of our growth is physical stores so people can interact with the products in person, but then also on our website. And um COVID really accelerated that because COVID gave us an opportunity to, to to sort of relook at our business, like I think a lot of people had a chance to do. And when we were, you know, sitting there at the beginning of COVID looking at who we are, what we are, and what we stand for and where we want to go, it was clear to me that the concept for United by Blue is so much bigger than United by Blue products that we design and make. And it was it was this idea of community and the idea of, of, of building the sustainability community that we've always been advocates for. We've always been, uh, I think, a driving force for, even though we're not the biggest sustainable brand, we've, we've almost had an outsized sort of approach to collaboration and bringing people together. And a good example of this is, at the beginning of of COVID as well, we started this alliance called the Mission Brand Alliance. And the Mission Brand Alliance was this consortium of brands that we brought together in the sustainability space to basically co-market to our customers. Knowing that there was a lot of uncertainty in the world and we wanted to basically reinforce the need for sustainable brands and mission driven brands. Mm -hmm. And so the Mission Brand Alliance was basically 30 brands and is 30 brands that came together to basically collaborate over compete. And the notion that we're we're stronger together than apart is something that um, really resonated with the brands, but also the customers. And it drove tremendous sales for the brands that were a part of it last year. Uh, you know, a good example of that is that we 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 sent out a catalog at the end of last year to all of our best customers to introduce my best customers to your best customers and their best customers and and it was it was it was the most productive catalog that we've ever seen because mm-hmm. lo and behold if you love united by blue you're probably going to love another mission brand that mm-hmm. you may not have heard of because a lot of them are you know hard to find and, and hard to understand or or hard to discover if you're if you're not actively looking for them and so this notion of collaboration is also symbolic in how we approach our retail business. And the idea that we want to bring people together and we want to introduce our customers to the best brands is something that I believe in. And I think that we're uniquely positioned to be this sustainability marketplace because we have a sort of, I wouldn't say agnostic, but somewhat agnostic approach to the products that we're known for. United by Blue is not like a single direct to consumer category brand that is known for one individual thing. We're known for this notion of sustainability and conservation. And so we can sell a uh, refurbished, high-end uh, rug from Revival, for instance. Revival, they, they, they find you know beautiful uh, Moroccan rugs that need to be restored and then they resell them. And so we can sell an $1,800 rug but we can also sell a ten dollar stasher silicone bag. And and then we can also sell a, you know, a, a twenty dollar ceramic mug from United by Blue that you see in Whole Foods as well. And so this this idea that people can shop across so much categories is, I think, a unique a unique thing with 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 United by Blue.
0: That's really, really cool. And and for the consumers that are really trying to enter the market, because um, you have a I would imagine from year end you guys kind of get probably a little bit more of the data but that market is has been growing like crazy because you know the the outdoor industry for one has has been growing exponentially year on year just because people are now enjoying the outdoors COVID, i'm sure accelerated that a little bit but you also have a lot more focus on sustainability so i'd imagine there's a lot of newcomers to the market that are searching for solutions that not only that they can trust but also provides kind of a, a central location for all their needs i mean you mentioned a mug and then being able to have a Moroccan rug, um, and the you're you can put that in your home, and then drink out of the mug. Like it's it's kind of creating a holistic vision of of that lifestyle. Um, and I think that that's a really smart move. Was it was it hard to kind of when all the brands came together? Is it kind of an uphill battle? Because I mean, I would imagine in terms of like marketing spend and trying to grow brands, you know, you're fighting against some huge, huge companies that have bigger budgets, bigger customer base. Um, and you're kind of that whole banding together idea was that kind of like a, Hey, you know, we're all in this together because this, this mission is so much more important than all of us individually that, you know, the market just needs to be more aware around it. Was that kind of the mindset around it?
1: It is. And I I think that Maybe that's the mindset around something like Mission Brand Alliance, which is which are which are brands that are co-marketing and not necessarily brands that we all sell. I think that the brands that we sell on our on our on our website and in our stores, that that is a little bit more transactional. Like we, we are buying from brands and, and selling and, and selling products that that we believe in. Um, I think that the, the the idea that we can. um Build deeper relationships with these brands because of who we are and 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 sort of the message that we want to tell is is I think, important because there is so much, you know, brands like United by Blue right now, as well as other sustainable brands are are in demand. and and retailers and websites and everything like that are are looking for stories to tell their customers, just like we're looking for stories to tell our customers. But I think that the partnerships that you that you form within this retail community, go much they they need to go they need to go deeper than just the initial transaction they need to go to a level of representation of like your beliefs and so i think what we do when we when we partner with a brand is that we in many ways we amplify and and build their brand in a positive way because of who we are. And and, and likewise, it's who, who they are help build us. So like it is a very retail is transactional um, from a dollars and cents standpoint, but then it goes much deeper than that with when it's done right. And I think that when when retailers just try to buy and sell something and not build anything else around that, mm-hmm. that's, that's like traditional retail and that's bound to fail in the, in the long run. And so that's sort of my perspective on when we buy something, if we're just buying it to sell it and not do anything else around that, not, not tell the story, not, uh, you know, try to curate and, 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 and really build that sort of storyline around a sustainable lifestyle and how you can integrate this into your sustainable lifestyle, then, then we're just becoming a, a, a dinosaur.
0: Yep, Definitely. And, and one of the things that I found so interesting, um, just diving through you know, your expansion over time has been the materials. Um, I've always been fascinated with supply chain and material science and how that can kind of transform how we make everyday things. Because a cup is a cup, and we'll probably always need cups, but if you can make that cup out of something else, that can have a bigger impact. Um, and that's just one example. So you guys have a ton of materials on your site and a lot of transparency around it. Um, has that been exciting for you to explore as well? Um, and why so many materials?
1: Yeah. I I mean, at the core of sustainability is, is what you make things of. We can have a great mission and pick up trash and, you know, support our conservation cause. But if we're making crap and we're, we're making stuff that's either made from, you know, unsustainable materials or made in unsustainable ways, then. Nothing else really matters, um, and also like the quality of what you make is, is is paramount because if you're buying something and using it once and then throwing it away, um, that's not sustainable, even if it's made from sustainable material. So when we look at when we look at materials and we look at our supply chain, you know we do use a number of things that are conventional sustainable materials. Um, and I say conventional in that you know something like organic cotton. Or recycled polyester is really conventional now from a sustainability standpoint when i started 12 years ago uh it wasn't like organic cotton recycled polyester was actually believe it or not like a selling point for sustainability um, i think it's like that's par for the course now you know if, 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 if it's a shirt and it's like you know like you, you don't really like get much credit for being organic uh, although it's important still, and I think it's, there's plenty of conventional cotton still out there. It's not necessarily a, like a unique factor, but to to push sustainability forward, I've always believed that because of my experience now, you know, 15 years in the industry, sustainability is not a status quo. It doesn't, it doesn't exist today the same way that it would, it exists in 10 years. Um, and that, that example of organic cotton is the perfect example, because um, although that was, you know, Best-in-class sustainability. Ten years now, it's par for the course. And so, same thing goes for anything else that you're that you're using now. It's like, how do you push sustainability forward as a brand and not just accept it for what it is today and say, oh, this is this is this is sustainable because um, this is what's readily available and this is what people are saying is sustainable. I think as a brand, you always have to be questioning because you, even at our size, you you have you have power in creating the demand for what is next. And so sustainability has to be driven by the brand's decision to pioneer something new and and maybe take a chance on something new because the consumer might create some halo demand, but the brand decision to actually use a material is what's actually going to drive the demand in the supply chains. And so one of the things that we've done from an innovation standpoint is you know, we've, we've tried to look a lot more at the natural fiber world and, and say, hey, if it's a natural fiber and it, and it exists in this world in a, in a natural state, that is going to be the most sustainable form of textile that you can make. Anything synthetic has an innate challenge with sustainability. Recycled polyester is a great example. Great. We're recycling water bottles. We use a lot of it. Don't get me wrong. But it sort of bugs me because it's not the most sustainable option for us right it's got a whole bunch of issues with the fact that it's plastic to start with the fact that it it um you know it sheds if you wash garments that have recycled polyester and that those microplastics get in the ocean and things like that we try to use it on materials that like a bag for instance that needs durability and isn't going to go in the washing machine all the time if, if at all so that's mm-hmm. that's probably a better use for it but like yeah when it's in like a fleece or anything like that it's causing a whole bunch of issues so natural fibers are a big focus of ours and bison fiber was something that we pioneered a number of years ago that um has really become an interesting part of our product line because we make these amazing socks out of it we make our all of our jacket insulation anything that's an insulated jacket is made from a bison shield insulation which is our proprietary um bison fiber and wool insulation so if you think about a bison you see a picture of it in like yellowstone covered in snow in the winter time happy as can be um, It's because of their fiber it's because of this beautiful beautiful fiber and there's there's a there's a growing industry of bison ranches in america which are actually as much as the livestock industry is not a sustainable industry the alternative to traditional cattle versus bison is is night and day uh bison are native species to the grasslands of north america so they help restore the native plants and the native native uh ecosystems and biodiversity um, they are uh, much more of a natural species in terms of how they're raised and how they eat and how they consume, and um, and they, they 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 ultimately are are a lot more sustainable and, and healthier than say traditional livestock. So if you have the ch- if you're a meat eater, any of the choice between eating uh, like traditional cattle or bison, bison is always the better choice. But in that process of raising these bison the fiber wasn't being utilized. It was being discarded, wasted. So we basically found that as a natural fiber opportunity to harvest it and use it in our products. And so since we started Bison Shield several years ago, we haven't used any synthetic insulations. We haven't used any uh, down products which have innate sustainability problems as well sometimes. So all of our insulation in all of our jackets are is from the, the bison fiber that we harvest that is gonna get wasted anyways.
0: So what was that conversation like of, of thinking about Bison Fiber? I mean, how did you come across it? Because that, I mean, brilliant for one, so that's absolutely awesome. Um, but how did you really find that subject? Because to, to almost invent a new material, if you will, or a new product material to be able to put in a supply chain, like that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of innovation, probably a lot of testing. What was that roadmap for you guys and how did you kind of start that process?
1: You know, it, it started with the realization that there was an opportunity to explore the natural fiber world, and 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 that 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 came from probably about, it was a while ago, but we we were using wool, so traditional wool in our socks, and socks were starting to perform really well for us as a business. And I started just contemplating, as I do, about the material that we were using, and it's like you know it, if if if, if wool is such an, uh, an amazing material, what, what makes a sheep special, right? Like w- why is a sheep the only the only natural fiber that we should be exploring? And I didn't really actually have confidence that I even knew where that, that sheep, how that sheep was raised, where it was raised, how it was harvested. So I started thinking about, okay, this is natural fiber and it's working really well, both from a performance and from a sales standpoint but I don't really know much about it. So then I started to think about other species that were sort of part of smaller industries and, and and maybe a little bit easier to sort of wrap my head around. And, you know, you look at alpaca, you look at, you know, llama, you look at all these different animals that have like these little, like, you know, cute little farms all across, you know, the world. <laughs> and uh, and they're known for like, you know, being really beautiful materials, but they're all very niche novelty. Um, and novelty. Then, and then you sort of, and then, and then you brought in your search and you start to see, okay, and then the bison. And then, so I, I started thinking about bison because of that sort of curiosity around other natural fibers beyond wool. And when I, when I got my first uh, little handful of bison fiber from a friend who was out in Montana, who lives in Montana, he sent me, he sent me some bison fiber because he knew I was interested in it. And, um. And it, and it was like cashmere. It's like this, this like amazing like animal that's like you know almost looks like a tank. You wouldn't think it's such a beautiful, delicate material. And so the undercoat of the bison, maybe not the outer coat, uh, but the undercoat is 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 comparable to cashmere. And when I when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, we got to figure out how to do something with like this. And so that began the process to make the first product, which was a sock, um, and then the sock was only using the undercoat of of the bison and all of the coarse fiber so anything secondary beyond the the undercoat so there's like generally like three or four grades of fiber that you can take from a bison coat it's not like a sheep which is fairly consistent in its in its uh consistency throughout the coat there's actually like layers of fiber so like a dog if you think about how a dog has an outer coat and then that like if, you, if you've ever seen a dog shed, that stuff that comes out, that's the down. That's like super soft, and you can do the same. I mean, you could do this with with, with like a, a you know a dog. Like like you could take that undercoat as it sheds, and you could make yarn out of that. And some people do. It's not very scalable, I don't think. Um, but uh, <laughs> but what true sustainability is is using everything. And so when we started to only use the undercoat. And then I was stockpiling all of a sudden because I was I was we were shearing these bison and then we had all this extra fiber that wasn't able to go into socks because anything coarse would be itchy. Mm-hmm. I, I realized that we had to we had to find a way to use that in a way that didn't touch the skin and that's where bison shield insulation came mm-hmm. from because all of a sudden we were able to bond that with wool and um, create these these really beautiful sheets of insulation that could then go into a shell into the jacket shell and provide exceptional warmth and comfort and, and not touch the skin.
0: Wow. So from a manufacturing standpoint, what was that process like? Cause when you, when you talked about shearing, I mean, you can shear, you know, sheep and it's consistent. So you just kind of do it, toss it in, make it into a fiber. Was that different going through the layers? Like, was that extra steps in the process that you guys had to do in order to innovate, how to make it into a fiber or like, was it from the shearing process, the separation after the shearing?
1: It's it's a dehair, It's called a dehairing process. So like you, what you do is you shear you shear a bison, then you take all of that fiber is mixed together. It goes and gets scoured, which is just a, a technical term for washing it. So you you scour the fiber. You get all the you know all the all the junk out, and then you take that scour, that clean fiber and you go to a dehairing process. And a dehairing uh, machine, like an industrial one, is 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 massive. They're like you know fifty feet long. And they have these 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 rollers, these combs that basically the fiber goes through, and the different uh, grades of fiber drop out at certain points of this deharing process. Mm-hmm. And the only fiber that makes it to the very end of the of the of the machine um, is the the finest micron count, which is going to be your your down, your 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 cashmere, essentially. Um, so. The, the C, B, A, and then prime is what it's called. So C is like the coarsest fiber that has, you know, like the thicker black hairs and, and like a little bit like what you would use for, like, uh, like you can make rope out of it. And like, it's, it's hard to use that material for anything, anything nice. And then, but then the B and the A is what we use for our insulation. So it's not fine enough to put into a yarn. So like my my socks here are bison, and these are these are this is like the cash the prime goes into this, um, and but then B and A is what is like in a jacket insulation. And so it's it's this it's this machine that basically separates out the the the, the different grades of fiber, and That's it runs awesome. really it runs really slow, and it's like it takes a long time to basically from shearing a bison. To actually making a product, it is a long process. And it's something that is all currently for us, like our socks, fully domestic supply chain, Canadian. We we actually share our bison in Canada, we scour it in Canada, then we dehair it in the US, and then we produce um our socks in the US as well.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I love that you dove into that process a little bit just because um, you know, I I thankfully have had the opportunity to go into some factories where that kind of stuff is going. Um like there's a denim manufacturer in Phoenix that basically they take denim. So when you donate your stuff to H&M or they work specifically with the cotton brand, all the blue jeans to green initiative, essentially, they just get truckloads of jeans and very similar process. They're separating the fibers of those jeans into material and then they make insulation out of it for homes, goes to Habitat for Humanity, goes into cars, and then they're able to take the brass out of that and then repurpose that as well, and so it's just, and so that machine that you were talking about, that totally know what you mean. It's just finer and finer as it goes through, and it slowly just separates it. Um, it's it's fascinating, um, but I don't think a lot of people get that opportunity to kind of know what that process looks like. Um, so I'm I'm grateful you kind of jumped into that a little bit. So in terms of the future of United by Blue, I mean, what are kind of your plans? Because I was imagining this is you know, this is part of a much bigger process that you're slowly building towards. Um, cause obviously you've been doing this for 10 years and I think the growth and the thoughtfulness that you guys have had as a brand has been massive. Where are you kind of seeing the brand starting to go in the future in the next few years?
1: We're only touching the tip of the iceberg when it comes to giving people the products to live a sustainable lifestyle. And I think that as we, broaden our 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 product assortment and we offer people more more products to offer to to live a sustainable life that's that's sort of the core the core element of where united by blue's going is is to be your go-to destination for for those best-in-class sustainability products and then from a from a from an actual sort of distribution standpoint we really do believe that we need to be increasing our physical footprint to really introduce more people to this so that you know online online is great direct-to-consumer sales online are are are, you know a core element of today's modern economy but in many ways it is still limiting because you know unless you're unless you're 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 a consumer that is that is going to our our you know our website at unitedbyblue.com there's not as much discovery opportunity as when you have a physical presence of a of say store so we're really focused on opening stores across the country. So we'll be opening United by Blue stores over the next few years to try to to try to grow our physical footprint, both to obviously grow our sales, but also to grow the ability for us to have physical presence to coordinate our all of our cleanups from. So physical stores become the hub for our conservation activities. That is a a huge part of the brand. It's it's like if we have a physical presence, we then have, if we have a physical store presence, we have the ability to have a physical conservation presence, and we've done that historically through our wholesale distribution. So anywhere we've had wholesale retailers, we've also tried to do, to do cleanups with them in conjunction with them, but that's limited because ultimately they're not ours, and and so we can only, do that to a certain extent. But in Philadelphia, for instance, pre-COVID, we would we would have regular cleanups of rivers here in Philadelphia where we would draw 300 people out you know, the snap of a finger and we'd be able to pick up you know, 2,000 pounds of trash out of the Delaware or Schuylkill River on a Saturday uh, without really too much effort because we have this community. So we wanna build community throughout different markets in the US as well as abroad and, and u- utilizing our, our retail distribution as a way to fund that as well. So the funding of, you know, the, the physical store in, in a way generates the community, but also generates the the profit and the sales to have an outsized impact. So I'd say that sort of the the, the combination of product assortment being broad enough to help people live a more sustainable life and encourage sustainability in, in, in everybody's life. And then the physical aspect of retail expansion to drive our, our community involvement as well.
0: I really like that. And and it's it's funny you you... Kind of talk a, a lot about retail, and and everybody's been talking about the death of retail, right? They're kind of like, oh, well, it's over, it's over, and and it's more just it's shifting. You know, what what can a retail space be um, rather than just a place for someone to come, walk in, buy something, walk out? It's becoming a community hub for brands that actually have a bigger mission and i i love that you touched on that because that that is the transformation of retail it's not that retail is going to go away people still want to go in person especially when it comes to trying on a jacket or anything that they're actually going to be wearing day to day you know there's a physical aspect to it and if you're just shipping stuff and returning it and doing that whole thing you have that that impact of all the shipping involved of you know sending something to someone to to test it and then send it back so yeah i think retail is a huge play What's what's kind of your favorite part of this whole process um, of you know your your eleven years of running United by Blue? What's been your kind of your favorite part of the process along the way? It's a good
1: question. I think my favorite part of the process of United by Blue has been seeing you know some, something that I envisioned. 10, a decade ago and and some of the, 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 the trends slash, uh, you know, cultural shifts that were happening at the time actually manifest. I think that it's really fulfilling and sometimes scary to think back because 10 years is not a long time in the grand scheme of things, um, but to think how much has changed in that amount of time and how much in many ways, seeing the future at that time and and, and now, now seeing that future come to be I think is, is really interesting and also really fulfilling because you know you were right I guess is the, the <laughs> first thing you're like hey like I wasn't crazy to think that people cared about this issue you know or I wasn't crazy to think that there's a viable business model around conservation and sustainability um, and so I think that's been one of the more fulfilling parts is starting something and seeing it through, although we're nowhere near done with our journey, I, we still have a lot to do and a lot to build. Um, seeing that sort of come full circle, because a lot of times I don't think many, many people have the patience to to see a vision over a decade. And so I think that that's been, that's been incredibly fulfilling. Um, and even, even like within that, the, the, the sort of smaller examples of seeing some of these supply chains, seeing some of the, um, you know brands that have come after us also come into being and 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 find a, a really you know uh, a strong customer and 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 demand for what they're doing. I, I love to see other brands come about and be successful in this space. That's been I think also really fulfilling and now that I've been at it for long enough to see so many brands that you know you, you see a brand that I still think is new, but it might have started, Five six years ago, and and they're doing phenomenal work in something that I would have never seen happening uh, or envisioned happening when I started. And it's it's neat to see this ecosystem and this community of brands that have come out of of, of all of these these consumer demands and these trends that are happening. And I and I and I don't think that this, that's going to go away. I think it's as you know, the demand for sustainability and um, you know notion of of leaving the world better than found it. It's it's only going to get more important. And I think that the community of brands around it are only going to get stronger, especially if they find ways to continue to, to support and build community around, around this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was it, so from a founder perspective, you know, I think when you go through a 10 year timeline, there are a lot of ups and downs in that process. Um, and I would imagine there's a lot of doubt that kind of comes up when it's like you're going on something that you see is going to happen in the future and you're like no no no! I'm so convicted on this that I'm going after it I'm going to build this vision and I'm going to make it happen what were I mean was that always something that kind of kept you going or what what was how did you kind of overcome some of those struggles I guess where it's you know people are like oh man are you sure this is going to work oh man or, it's a little bit crazy um, like are you sure the world's going to go that way and you're so convicted about it what was I mean is that part of that process for you?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, and I think there's, there, there is a sense of like naivety in, in a way as well that you have to like great entrepreneur, Not and I don't mean naivety in a, in a, in a, in a bad sense. I mean, it in, in a sense that like, you just sort of drown out everything else and, and you're just heads down and focused. Um, and, and there is a, you know, a, an age factor here. I mean, you know, I think that the the notion of doing what I did for the last, you know, because my journey started with my brand that I had started before before this, like back in, so 15 years ago. And, And so ever since 15 years ago, 2006, I've been building my own brand and my own business. And I think that I started when I was 19. And so the, the, the naivety of being young and not knowing anything else, I think, Created a sort of a, a tunnel vision that can be very beneficial. It can also be when you're young. It can also be very harmful and detrimental sometimes <laughs> when you're a teenager, right? Um, looking back, you, you don't know that at the time. <laughs> but I think if if you if you find that tunnel vision on something that is productive and powerful, I think that age, being young and being a young entrepreneur at the time, and um, you know, allowed me to focus on it with. Conviction that I don't think I would have as easy of a time doing now at like thirty-five. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's actually that's why that's why so many so many brands and so many things happen when you're when you're younger. And then not to say that I wouldn't. In fact, I would probably do something a lot more. Like I would make make as many mistakes now, but I think that I wouldn't be able to put ten years or twelve years into something. In the same way that i did when i was younger
0: yeah yeah definitely i think that's a struggle that um a lot of founders go through i mean i've i've never really had a job either i've, I've worked for myself my entire life and when you do that y- yeah you have to have sort of a sense of you know i know i know what i'm doing but also that naive side of it of just being like i'm just gonna go with this i feel convicted about it not sure how it's gonna turn out i'm gonna make mistakes i'm gonna take some risks but you know, I believe in what I'm working on and it kind of evolves and it, and it changes. And then when you look back on it, you're like, man, why did I do that? But at the same time, that taught you the lesson that now, you know, how to do it. Um, and I, I always believe experience is the best teacher. So, so do you remember your first, you know, quote unquote, sustainable purchase that you did make? Was it a product? Was it food? Was it fish?
1: You know, that's a good question. Cause I, I, I feel like sustainable products don't have to be necessarily labeled as such, right? So I think that um, I don't necessarily have a good idea of that. I think when you're, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're growing up, you're probably buying or, or participating in a lot of sustainable things, and you don't know it, right? Like, like when I was growing up in Singapore, and I would bike everywhere. I just go bike everywhere. I wouldn't. I didn't have a car until I came to the U.S. Um, nobody drove um, in my high school because you take subway. Uh, the MRT it's called but the subway system or buses or bike. And so um, you know, looking back, like that was that was a really sustainable way of of living. I wasn't driving to school, um, like I think a lot of people here do when they're in high school and things like that. And um, you know, I would, I would uh yeah, I mean I, I think, you know, I I would always go to the local food courts and, you know, eat eat locally and everything like that. I think There's, there, there is something, there is something sustainable about your life when you're, when you're growing up that way. Um, But from a brand standpoint, I I don't really know what first sustainable brand I purchased. I mean, you know, I was, I was definitely into the outdoor brands um, when I was starting United by Blue, although I couldn't really afford them, you know, at, at, at at that, at that point in my life, you know, the notion of buying anything from like Patagonia, for instance, was that was, that was, that was a high-end um, yeah, was Patagucci uh, at the time. Exactly. It still is in a way. <laughs> and, and of course I'm not buying Patagonia now, cause I'm only wearing United by blue, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I can't really say for sure what it is. I think, I think just a combination of, of, of things like that.
0: Nice. Nice. And where is your favorite place to enjoy nature? It's
1: hmm. a good question. I love, I, I think that there is something very special about the the wilderness of the US i think the US is even even growing up in singapore i had this affinity towards just like the 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 idea and the notion of north american wilderness like the forests of 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 like if i came to the us to visit family growing up i was always enamored with how wild this country is, despite it being, you know, 300 and some odd million people, you know, outside of the the dense urban centers, which even are not as dense as like Asian urban centers. um, It's just very wild. And so like, living in Philadelphia, and spending a lot of time, say, you know, you go two hours, one, two hours outside of Philadelphia, into the Poconos or the Catskills up in New York and things like that. I mean, you're two hours outside of New York City, the largest population center in the US and the East Coast is very quote unquote dense for the, for, for the US but it's wild and like there's bears, there's deer, there's, you know, I mean, you name it. And so I love spending time in like, for example, the Poconos, like it's, it's, it's not a very, it's not like the Rocky Mountains or anything like that but like you get out there and you know you have tens of thousands of acres of wilderness at your fingertips and um you know the, the 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 way that you know the state park systems work and the national parks and everything like that there's just so much access to the outdoors in the u.s that i think it's easy to take it for granted um but it doesn't take it doesn't take much to get really surrounded by nature even if you live in a city in the u.s
0: nice i i think that's awesome i i haven't been up there uh yet Unfortunately, I've done more more of the West Coast um, side of things. But, yeah, I've always kind of wanted to check out that East, East Coast side because I've heard it's absolutely stunning in a, in a totally different way.
1: It is. It's not as dramatic, but it's, 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 it's beautiful and very, very different. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Um, so how can people kind of get involved with United by Blue, check you guys out, um, site, socials, whatever it is? Um, yeah, if you want to just share that.
1: Yeah, I mean the best way to find find more about us is is our website unitedbyblue.com, but also um you know we keep people up to date on Instagram, so go on instagram.com/unitedbyblue. I'd say those are the two the two best ways. Um if you're ever in Philadelphia, we have two beautiful stores here. We just opened a store in Chicago um and hopefully more more to come.
0: That's awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so pumped uh, to be able to talk with you about you know, kind of your vision, I think you, you're you pioneering the space in a completely different way. Um, and I just think that the positioning that you have as a brand and the mission that you guys are supporting, I mean, your impact is just going to keep going through the roof. And I, I just, yeah, grateful for the conversation. So happy that you're able to take the time to do it.
1: Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate it. Good, good chatting with you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. I've been shopping from United by Blue for years and they really are an outstanding solution, especially if you're looking for something more sustainable. Check out their store in the show notes and give them a follow on social media. Through your purchasing decisions, you can not only remove trash from the oceans, but also buy extremely high quality items that you can trust. And if you've been enjoying these episodes, share your favorite one with a friend or post it on social media. Your support goes a long way and the more the community grows, the more impact that we can have on the world. So thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.